Welcome to the Business Processes Simplified podcast. It's David Jennings, your host, and our guest on this episode is Simon Bowen. He is a visual models master, and I know you're going to love this episode. In a moment, I'll give you his full bio. The episode was recorded as part of the Business Systems Summit, so you're going to hear that intro. But I did want to just kind of set the stage for Simon because this episode is a little bit different from uh, some of the other episodes that you will listen to on the show and the structure of it. And the biggest difference here is it's not a step-by-step system that you can follow, which is the general premise of this podcast. But Simon's work, he more teaches people how to create visual models to quickly get across ideas. And his work has been really impactful for what I do at System Hub and also Systemology as well. So I think you're going to get a lot from it. I'm also going to make sure that the team include the video recording because I think when you can see the visuals, because he is teaching visual learning, uh, the the video is going to greatly enhance your understanding of the topics he's covering. So make sure you head over to systemhub.com forward slash podcast and check out the episode for Simon Bowen and then you'll be able to dig in a little bit deeper. Now, if you also want to find out a little bit more, and maybe you are a visual person and you want to see some of these visuals in play, I definitely suggest that you get yourself a copy of my Systemology book. You can head over to systemology.com forward slash book. The tagline for that book is create time, reduce errors, and scale your profits with proven business systems. That wraps together all of my thinking around business systems and applying it into small business, basically taking businesses that have zero systems in place through to something that is finely tuned and is running like a Swiss watch. It is the step-by-step system for systemizing business. And there are some visual tools in there, particularly at the start of the book and towards the end of the book that have been directly influenced and it was helped that I craft these together from Simon Bowen. So I think it'll kind of really top off a lot of what you'll learn from this episode. Let's go ahead and get started and uh, look forward to getting your feedback. Welcome to the System Hub Podcast. Hola. Konnichiwa. Guten Tag. Where we interview world-class experts. You have to have a lot of passion for what you're doing. I was fanatical in my 20s. If you could find a way to produce a business that works without you, your life would change like that. Extracting, organizing, and optimizing their best systems and processes for rapid business growth. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Business Systems Summit. I'm your host, David Jennings, and in this session, we're going to be chatting with Simon Bowen. Now, I had the good fortune of meeting Simon at a a friend's event, Steve Dixon. We were both speaking there that the event was centered around this idea of systems and processes. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I've got to learn more about this guy's stuff. Simon is a, a very rare and deep thinker who's able to take complex ideas and then simplify them down into very easy to communicate visual models. These models can then be used to sell ideas, any ideas, whether it's to prospects, customers, staff, suppliers. Just when you think about it, every engagement with a new idea relies on a conversion of thought. And Simon really is a master at engineering this thought conversion. He's highly sought after by Fortune 500 companies, um, heads of government, the military, private sector, and and quite simply, it's because his proprietary process, which he calls the models method, works. And that's not to mention he's a super nice guy, so it's with great pleasure that I get to welcome Simon to the summit. 
Thanks, David. Thanks very much. How are you? Now, I know we've got a lot to cover. We're going to dive into specifically your system for thinking and influence. Just before we get started, I always like to just talk in terms of the problems and challenges that this particular system aims to solve for business owners and then would love to go through your process in more detail. Yeah, certainly. So if you think about if you think about not just business but everything, people want to be successful at multiple levels. So whether that's in sport, in business, in their family, in their social networks or whatever, we all have a view about what success would be for us and what that actually looks like. And for humans, you know, Stephen Covey made a statement once that just landed with me so powerfully, I've never ever forgotten it, where he talks about the space between stimulus and response. And so for animals, the space between stimulus and response is automatic reaction, freeze, fight or flight, right? But in that space between, humans have this thing called free will. And that's the distinction between us and every other species on the planet. In the space between stimulus and response, we have the opportunity for choice. We have free will. The problem is that most people don't exercise that. They still do freeze, fight or flight because it's, you know, it's primitive brain hardwired and they don't actually think through stimulus. What does that mean? And let me understand it, system for thinking. And then what's the outcome that I want, the response, which is almost always going to include other people, system for influence, and therefore, how do I bridge the gap? How do I communicate? How do I influence? How do I hold true to an idea that allows me to address the gap between in a way that gets me an outcome that I actually want? And so I became really obsessed with this idea of how do we bridge this gap? How does a leader who's going to speak to their team, their staff, bridge the gap between in a powerful way but have the team get to an outcome that the leader had in their mind? And then the second thing that kicked in for me was this issue of speed. Speed, not time, speed is the great leveller, speed and momentum. People talk about I don't have enough time. The real question is are you going fast enough? Mm. You know, so speed, and today particularly, you know, we're in a hyper-fast connected world. The speed between idea and action determines the level of success. I've just put a, an article on LinkedIn this morning, actually. If you imagine idea, opportunity up here, and there's a certain amount of time taken before you take action, execute and get a result. Now, the longer that line is, the less the result's going to be. And so I had this, this, I was obsessed with patterns and I was obsessed with this idea of how do we bridge the space between at speed? How do we structure thinking so the idea can be transported rapidly with integrity and with maximum levels of influence? And the models method was born, the system for thinking and influence, represented in these visual models that fill the gap in between with a blueprint for the brain, just like drawing the blueprint for a house. I'd like a house blueprint you get the house and Mm. so that's loosely where it came from it came from ceos and i'm working one-to-one with saying i've got to speak to the staff about this big organizational change we're going to implement how do i do that and sales teams where they're selling complex products saying our marketplace is reducing what we do to price how do we get them to understand you know the real value of what we do well then we we built a system for that yeah i love it and that that distinction around sort of speed versus time really resonates because 
we can influence speed, whereas we can't really influence time. Time just is what it is. So I, th- I think that's key. And I think models are such a great way because it's, it's the quickest way to get an idea across. You know, having a lengthy report or something like that, it's just people can get lost. They don't follow the details. Even videos, audios, like the visual model, if crafted correctly, you get an instant connection that makes you go, aha, uh-huh, I get it. Yeah that's, yeah, that's why I love them. Yeah, totally. So one of the, do you mind if I share my screen? No, it's probably visual models, of course. <laughs> There's a couple of principles that, you know, would help people. And if you get these clear, mm. it changes everything about how you communicate. So if we view the vertical scale as an intensity scale from high to low, and the horizontal scale is time. Um, and the interesting thing about time is you're absolutely right, the distinction between speed versus time. 24 hours is 24 hours. The question is how much do you get done in one hour? Mm. And people that are highly successful get more done in one hour at speed than people who are not as successful. And they leverage and everything else to do it. But time is not just the passing of time. It's also the, the speed at which it passes. But when we put something new in front of somebody or even when something new is put in front of us. Humans are hardwired for resistance. Our resistance to anything new is automatically high. And we know this because if somebody goes into a shop and the shop assistant says, may I help you, the universal response is no thanks, just looking, resistance. Yet they went into the shop voluntarily. There's obviously something in there that interested them. In two or three minutes' time, they'll probably go to the shop assistant and say, do you have one of these things? But when the shop assistant approached them with the idea of looking at something, they said, no, thanks, just looking. We have hard wiring for resistance on almost everything. And most people, I think, intuitively know that. But the other side of the problem is we have no hard wiring for acceptance. And we know this is true as well because if someone says to you, David, you're awesome, you go, no, 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 it's nothing. When a new idea is put in front of us or a compliment or anything, our acceptance is low. And so it immediately highlights this inflection point where the two curves flip. And this inflection point, of course, is what we call conversion. But it's actually conversion of thought and belief. So in religion, we talk about people being converted. In sales, we talk about the conversion. It's the conversion of thought and belief. And all that is is the two curves flip over. And we move from a scenario over here where we're selling to a scenario over here where we're facilitating. So we either sell or we facilitate. And that shift from selling to facilitating is a big deal I'd love people to kind of get clear about. Selling is when we feel the pressure of time and we try to push, you know, define the problem, offer a solution, aggravate the problem, create urgency and scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. And if you push, by and large, people push back. Facilitation is when people already have this conversion of thought and they want to know more, and so we draw out. We draw out from them. And we just found that if we put visual models in front of people, we go straight to the inflection point. What a model does is it cuts out all of that because now it's you and I looking at a model just like we're doing now. I'd run this idea. This is a model. Mm -hmm. I'd run this idea of the gap, the space between having to influence people, 
we could have a great conversation about that for a long time, but the moment I draw this model for you, that can't be denied. We both know that that's actually true. And so what a model does is it brings this moment, what a great model done if built well, it brings this moment of incontestable truth to the conversation. Now, in your mind, you're going, oh, how, do I, how do I get those curves to flip fast when I'm selling? How do I get those curves to flip fast if I'm talking to my team? How do I get those curves to flip fast when I'm talking to my teenage son or daughter or my child <laughs> when I'm tidying up their room or something? Now that that model's there, we can't unsee it. It's an incontestable truth. All we're ever doing when we're influencing is trying to get the curves to flip. Question on maybe a distinction or your insight around, you know, we're talking about this visual model here. Yeah. How would that compare to something like, I remember a few years ago we had a, a solar person come to sell us getting solar panels on the roof and part of their sales process was they had this spreadsheet of calculations and we worked through, you know, how much are we spending at the moment, what size is the, the space on the roof and they could calculate out and it was almost like not so much a, a visual model but a, a model that we worked through to get a result that was almost like we, we both built this result. Mm. And I'm curious to know, yeah, if two of these, if they're completely separate, if, they're, if they are leaning on a same... This, so this, I'll give you... so. Let me ask you this. As you went through that spreadsheet and then got towards the end of the spreadsheet, were you in a position where you said, I absolutely must do this? This is, this is a high priority for me. You know what? Well, we didn't end up getting solar. So it wasn't that case because we, we got to the end and I felt like the numbers on their own weren't compelling enough. It, Correct. It wasn't clear. So what happens is we have these phases of problem solution, offer, urgency, and uh, scarcity. And the spreadsheets are part of the solution. World Vision did some interesting research. They ran some ads with that a control group and then a couple of study groups. And this is to raise money for sponsorship of children, right? In one ad, they told people, here's what $5 will buy, a cataract operation. Here's what $20 will buy, food for a month for a family. Here's what $10 will buy. And the average donation rate was something like $2.38. They did this in the movie theatre with defined numbers of people and then asked for donations afterwards. Then they ran another ad where it just showed images, video, of children with, dis with distended, malnourished stomachs and sad children. And the average donation rate was $5 something. And they thought, right, well, okay, what if we made an ad like that and we put here's what a small amount of money will buy and uh, they ran that ad, and the surprise was the donation rate went down from the $5. So as soon as they mm. put, put money or numbers specifically, they did a lot of research after that. So as soon as they put numbers specifically into the conversation, the logical brain clicked on, and people went, okay, that's what $5 buys. $5 is a pretty good amount. I can buy a cataract operation for $2.50. I'll donate $2.50, right? In mm. other words... The ROI brain clicks in and the question is, what's a good ROI? And the, the thing that I've discovered is 90% of the people that I communicate with don't know how to calculate ROI. And they mm. go, the benefit minus the cost. No, no, that's not the ROI formula. And when you say to people, what would a good ROI be? They go, I don't know, 25 or 30%. Well, the, the ASX 200 
top 200 companies in Australia for the last 13 years have had an average ROI of 9 to 11%, and that's the top 200 stocks. Yes. You know, what do most people think is happening with their superannuation? It's certainly not at 25%. And what do people think their home is doing? It's certainly not 25%. They have to pour a ton of money into that. And so people have this distorted view on what value they should get out of something. And the spreadsheet drives into the logical brain. The other thing is that people will often use, you know, stock images and stuff like that. And what's actually going on is if we imagine a visual scale on the vertical, and the visual's interesting, people, 83% of all signals from the outside world come in through the visual cortex, 83%, 11% come in through the ears. And so when we speak to people or show them written words, which is still a verbal process, we're only tapping into an 11% channel and we're largely leaving 83% channel untapped. So if we talk to people with no visual access to the idea versus high visual access on one scale, and then on the other scale, if we, because the human brain needs to be able to structure things, needs to be able to make sense. It's a, the human brain is a making sense machine. Mm. Its whole job is to make sense of, make sense of. And so if we give people no access to the structure of the idea versus high access to the structure of the idea, we start to see some interesting things. Down in this bottom left corner where there's no visual access and there's no structural access, in other words, someone's only having a conversation, people will go, oh, look, I hear you, but it's just a lot of noise. Mm. It was the gift of the gab or, yeah, it's just words, it's only words. So what a lot of people will do is they try to increase the level of visual access with stock images and things like that. If we give people high visual access but no structural access, they say, oh, I see. And when they say, oh, I see, it becomes interesting. So if you remember the soccer team of boys stuck in the tunnels or the, the Boxing Day tsunami, you know, when you heard it on the news, when the newsreader read it out, you kind of went, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty bad. We're down in the red quadrant. That sounds pretty bad. But then we just moved on. But then you see the images and you go, oh, I see. This is way harder to get those boys out than I thought or this is far more devastating than I thought. Then if we give people structural access to an idea and structural access is what I'm doing with this model, I'm giving your brain access to a structure that allows you to make sense of all this stuff. You go, oh, I get it. At the moment your brain, you go, oh, I get it. It's believable. So that leads us to this dark green quadrant at the top here. If we do both, you're saying, I see, I get it, this is desirable. And so models themselves, just drawing a model and then having some explanation around it gets you to desirable. And then we added one more thing to it. If you imagine these to be scales from 1 to 10, and you deliver the model at an 8 or above. We call this the choreography, how you walk through the model. There's been a very specific choreography that I've used as I've gone through this model. You get up into this, what we call the super green zone, where not only is it desirable, but it's absolutely buyable. I buy the idea of hook, line and sinker. And most people are operating somewhere in this band in their communication 
and we're on a journey to shift leaders, salespeople, thought leaders into the into that super green zone where it's viable. What your question triggered for me was the spreadsheet doesn't fit anywhere in that. The spreadsheet comes after you've bought the idea and they use the spreadsheet to validate your decision. You wouldn't use mm. the spreadsheet to drive someone's decision. You use the spreadsheet to validate their decision. Yeah, it's almost like that buying on emotion, but then the logical brain kicks in to go, yes, David, you've made the right choice. Of course. Yeah. And here's, here's some numbers to prove that, by the way, you know. But when you lead with the numbers, you actually lift them out of this matrix altogether. Yes. Because yeah. there's the, the numerical brain over here. Going, just give me the numbers, just give me the numbers, just give me the numbers, right? Uh, it's the problem when people are selling to a large company one of the issues that salespeople have when they sell to a large company is that the buyer is often the CEO or a manager or someone like that. But the CFO, who's the numerical brain of the company, sits over to the side and doesn't want to be in the conversation until they know the price. And then they're just equating, do we think that's a good price or not? But they don't have any understanding of the value. And the people inside the company can't explain the value to them. It's another reason we built models. We built models so that as we sold to corporates, the person we were selling to could take the model and go, he's got this really cool model. And they just talked through the model. That's one us more business than I can calculate. Somebody inside a company being able to take the model and show them the model. And even the CFI goes, okay, that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, so it's interesting. Well, I feel like, well, you're the best example of what it is that you teach. Cause I feel like we've, very strongly framed and with the use of models made it clear why models are so mm. desirable and beyond that, like I'm bought into the idea. So I'd love to kind of go through now the process for, well, how can someone create one of these models? So interestingly, like everything, you do something, you build a body of expertise around it. A certain portion of that then becomes intuition over time. Mm. And then people go, how can I do models like you do models? You have to then unpack what's become intuition to yes. teach it back again, right? And so the first thing I would say to people is there's really three levels. There's actually four levels of thinking that go on organisationally. But the, the first level is strategic. And strategic is all about context. How do you build your models? Levels of thinking. It always starts with the system for thinking. And context is about relevance to the marketplace. So the purpose of strategic thinking is to be constantly looking outwards to say how do we stay relevant to the marketplace? What's the context that makes us valuable? And we are, you know, the purpose of strategic thinking is to survive and thrive. So once video streaming occurred, Blockbuster was completely irrelevant. The context was completely irrelevant. They had to change everything about what they do or they weren't going to make it and they didn't make it, right? And strategic thinking comes up with all these ideas usually. That's really what you get out of strategic thinking, a plan, you know, a framework. Really all you get is ideas. Down here you need systems and the reason for systems is to take those ideas, that's not a well-drawn arrow, I'll do it a better colour. The reason for systems is to take ideas and make them operational. And operational is the content. In other words, this is us delivering what we deliver. This is the content of our solution. This is us doing our thing. 
And then the bit in the middle is tactical. And this is concept. And concept is uh, system design, organizational structure, plans and rehearsals, infrastructure, etc. So this is this middle bit, this concept bit is taking an idea and turning it into an output, which is the hardest work to do. You know, context and, and concept is concept is where all the money is in a business. So Andrew Lloyd Webber goes to the funders and says, Hey, I think I want to do a show about big cats. And I reckon the market will lap it up. And I'm sure the logical brain of the CFO went, you really have lost it now. That's it. We're done. And he went, no, I'm going to do it. We're going to, we're going to put a show on about big cats. It's going to be a big stage thing and it's going to be cats. <laughs> and uh, he probably had to sell his context pretty hard, right? Because all he had was an idea. He certainly didn't have a, a score, a musical score, a, a manuscript yet or anything like that. Anyway, so then they turn this idea into a, into a script and staging and the army of people that need to pull it together and the lighting and all of the conceptual stuff that has to come together to make that real, all the tactical stuff. Now, the truth is the success of a show like Cats or Cirque du Soleil has more to do with that than anything else. How do you play that show in five different countries at the same time and have exactly the same performance outcome every time? How do you play that Cirque du Soleil performance in five different countries? How do you have five Cirque du Soleil touring companies and everyone's getting a great show, right? It's got everything to do with the bit in the middle. And then day-to-day down here, it's largely to do with human performance. So when we build a model, we're, we're really challenging people to build context and concept into the model, mm-hmm. which is really what I did here. Context and concept sits in that model. Content isn't in there. Now, one of the mistakes people make when they build a model is they try to get the content in there as well, which is what the person was doing when they went to the spreadsheet, right? Yep. The content's not necessary. People just need to get a sense of... So when I said, if you deliver this thing at eight or above, in other words, what we call the choreography, you get into the super green zone. That's a concept. There's a thing called choreography that you know about and a part of your brain's going, well, how does the choreography work? How does the choreography work? Well, that's what I happen to do. You can hire me. I'll help you. Do you know what I mean? You don't need to know the content yet. Yes. Or if I'm the CEO of a company, well, what's, what's the choreography look like? We're going to go into that in more detail, but for now, I just want you to understand this, right? So the model is always about context and concept. And then the fourth thing on this system for thinking that no one talks about is contrast. And contrast is what is this not? So cats is not an acrobatic circus. Cats is not a comedy, sort of a, a stand-up comedy show. Cats is not a, mm. you know, he's crystal clear about what it's not. And he's crystal clear about there are some people that are not going to come to this, or not at least until it becomes cool, right? So people don't put any thought into what is it not. But once again, if I go through this model, there's a bunch of stuff that I could talk about on communication and influence but it's not in this model. Mm. And so the model says we're not talking about numerical evidence. We're not talking about evidence-based marketing. We're not talking about auditory, kinesthetic, etc. There's a bunch that's not in this model, and I don't even need to say it's not in there because it's not there, right? So then there needs to be some high-quality thinking in, you know, what I call the communication. And the communication is context, concept, and contrast by definition. 
We need to be clear about that. And usually when people are planning a communication, they start there. But that's actually the second step. The first step is geometry. How many dimensions do I think are involved in this? And what's the dynamic that I'm trying to represent, you know, with this story? So I, I actually always start with the geometry. So there's a reason why those three circles are vertical. I'm showing a top-down dynamic. If the circles were in a Venn diagram, it would say all three are kind of equally important. Mm. Not. Yes. Geometry automatically, without me saying a thing, geometry says the strategic level of thinking is the most important level of thinking. Without me saying a thing, market relevance is outside of the organisation, not inside of the organisation. In other words, the market gets to choose, not you. Geometry says there's these areas of overlap. Yes. The areas of overlap are almost where the output sits. You know, so it feels quite linear too, yeah. logical in the order as opposed Correct. to something like a triangle where, well, all of them are equally as important Correct. because without each, the structure falls. Correct. So I'm drawing a triangle deliberately. Oh, what was that? Okay, hang on a minute. I'm drawing the triangle deliberately because you need all three of these to build a great model and I'm putting some order on them, one, two, and three, but you need all three for a great model, right? And uh, starting with geometry is interesting. You know, I get hired by the government. They'll put a couple of hundred people in the room and I'll say to me, they're at war over a particular issue. And all of them collectively hate our policy. And then within them, there's these factions. And you've got a couple of hours to try and get them to reach agreement. <laughs> Set you up for success there. <laughs> <laughs> That's been my professional life for 25 years. That's what I get hired to do, right? Wow. I know now, just from experience, that if I get a room full of people like that and I just frustrate them for three quarters of the available time, so if it's a two-hour meeting, if I just frustrate the room for 90 minutes, oh, what do you think about that? Oh, okay, well, do you agree? Oh, you don't. What do you think? Like, just frustrate them for 90 minutes. Because without tension, there's no sale. Mm. Without, without tension, there's no sale. Without tension, there's no influence. Without tension, there's no buy-in. You know, like if I just don't have any tension around an issue, I'm probably not even hearing you, right? If I just don't care, there's no conversion to occur. So uh, actually, I frustrate the room. So oftentimes the clients will say to me, do you want to brief on who's going to be there? Do you want to know what's going to be like? I go, no, I don't care because I'm going to actually upset all of them. So, you know, like I'm going to build tension. And then at the three-quarter mark, 90 minutes in, I go to the whiteboard and I, and I say, I think I can draw this for you. And I just start drawing a shape. It might be a two-by-two two matrix or a Venn diagram or a triangle. And actually for 90 minutes, I've been thinking, I've been listening to identify how many dimensions do I think are involved in this? Like there's three in a triangle, then I'm breaking each side out into two. And there's two dimensions in there becoming four segments. And what's the dynamic of the model? What's the message I want the model to deliver? Linear, holistic etc etc and then I pick some geometry that will deliver that and I also pick geometry that will allow me to structure the conversation in a coherent way by facilitating the excuse me the idea out of the room so what's happened at the three-quarter mark is I do everything in the first 90 minutes to get them to the incontestable truth that this has to be solved today yes we have to leave the room, and I will have drawn some other models in between, but they'll be models about speed. We have to leave the room with this solved today. And so then 
when I you know, put the geometry on the board for the model that we're going to work on, as soon as I draw the shape, now we're facilitating what should be in that shape. And the yeah. rooms start facilitating content into the shape. But the magic... Well, I'm, I'm anticipating now the next piece. Like I feel like, I'm, I feel like you've given me a, a folder and you've started putting things in. Of course. But I know there are a bunch of other of tasks course. that still need to be filled. It's, it's, it's incredibly engaging. Well, there's a whole lot of choreography that's gone across this whole page. Why all of a sudden did I go from one model per page to two? Because I want the model on the left, the levels of thinking, the system for thinking, to be right beside the model on the right, which is the system for influence, which is the model. And why did I start with communication if it's number two? Why didn't I start with geometry, which is number one? It almost feels like because I would have thought that number one was communication. Correct. And therefore, oh, hang on, maybe there's something I've missed now because it's actually number two. Hang on, maybe my complete model of the world was incorrect. (laughs) Correct. That's exactly right. I'm trying to rattle your sense of reality. Yep. And I want to get a connection between the levels of thinking and then communication. So thought is only valuable when it becomes communication. And so I wanted a connection between this model and here. And you're totally right. There's an empty side to that triangle. If I said to you, oh, you know, Jesus, David, we've run out of time. (laughs) We've run out of time. I would love to have finished off talking to you about this, but we've run out of time, so I'll have to leave that. You will not let me leave until I fill in the bottom of that triangle. (laughs) And if this is a sale, doesn't everybody want the customer to be demanding that you finish off the conversation? Mm. And so the third thing down here is the choreography. So a great model is only becomes a great model when people design very specific choreography. And the choreography is the tricky piece because it's not actually drawn. You don't see it. Mm. It's psychology that sits under the delivery of the model. And so it's pathways. We talk about pathways. The direction in which you move through the model and the order in which you unpack the model. And then it's also punchlines. So a punchline is this, I studied comedy and stage magic to really inform this part of of the models method. A great joke is a setup, a setup, a setup, a setup, and a punchline that changes thought, right? A pathway, and magic is all about the setup, the setup, the setup, the reveal. And so... The pathway is the movement through the model, the setup, the setup, the setup, the setup, punchline. And uh, there's a whole science that we've created behind what we call the punchline effect. And the punchline is about landing key statements. And so when I said I start with geometry, that's a punchline. Because I know people are going to go, well, I wasn't expecting that. Like the geometry, right. So talking about contrast is a punchline. It's got to happen at a certain point in time. And so if we think about delivery of a model, so there's the thinking and how models help inform and unpack thinking. There's the model itself, which becomes the vehicle for communication influence. But then it's the delivery of the model, the presentation of it, the choreography of it that really actually makes it pop. And so when people are thinking about how how do they build out their idea, 90% of the time when I'm helping people unpack their models, Uh, So we have a series of five models in the sales process 
just a standard set of slides that we have. We have a set of five models in the sales process. So these paradigm shift models challenge thought. They're used in marketing. The pre-frame models build tension, buying tension. The value model creates desire for the product or service. The flagship model, this is in use in about 15 countries and five different languages. We call it the genius model. And in one model, one model, one genius model, we can unpack the entire value proposition of a company. So we've got a company selling a $1.6 billion multinational manufacturer selling ship construction off a genius model to navies. And we've got people selling a $5,000 advice product off the genius model because this tells people how. This is like your blueprint for how you do what you do that looks like a blueprint, like a plan, like a structure, and how, in particularly in complex sales, where there's an element of design or advice or content to be explained, how is more important than why. I know that Simon Sinek's gone, find your why, and everyone's talking about purpose-driven business, and that is important. But for the buyer, how you do it is more important than why you do it. And going through a spreadsheet to show you the numbers is not how. So the, this model, as you walk through it, it kind of causes people to go, oh, right, you've got a clear plan. So how builds confidence. And then we use the four futures model to create urgency. This is a time-based model. So we put a lot of time and effort into creating models that we can use as frames of reference for people that they can shoot through. But... So models that we can work with people on to help them, we extract out of them their business and put it into the models. So we take some structured sales models that we've tested in the marketplace and then we build the bespoke communications from a company into the models where we've already tested the choreography, we've tested the models themselves across all sorts of organisations. Those models now are in, in use you know, I spent six years helping the government in Western Australia build a 60,000-seat sports stadium. My job was to do all of the facilitation from the stakeholder groups in terms of what do you want in the stadium. Sporting groups, sports fans, the government, TV stations, everything. This is the company that builds the ships and sells them off models. I, I built the strategic plan and the five-year export plan for the wine industry in Western Australia. The, the export plan is based on one model market entry overseas and then all of these industries are industries that we've worked in where we've built models for them to sell and explain what they do and, and many many more so we haven't found an industry yet where we haven't been able to find out how to get that bespoke information about the company into the communication of what they do it's a pretty fascinating it's, it's a very interesting mm. It's a very deep topic and you've clearly done a lot of thought around it and different models to solve different situations. I suppose from a, a tangible leave someone with something, I'm wondering if we can talk through, I know um, when we talked earlier, you talked about this, why this, why now, why you, so, yeah. something that someone might be able to, to take one of these models and then a, apply it potentially to their situation. Yeah, so there's actually two things I'd love to leave with you. If we've got the time, there's yeah. one I'd love to leave with you that people can use to really reposition pricing very differently, Yeah, uh, like in the sale. And it's a model they could use straight away, actually, uh, and I'd love to walk through that with you. But I'd love to talk about 
the value model. So back up here, where I talked about these models, uh, this is this desire model is what we call the value model. Yes. So these are the pre-frame models in two versions, the value model, the genius model, and the futures model, and then these ones are paradigm shift models. And what I'd love to do is just take a few minutes on the value model and, and give people, we're not going to build the model, but I'd love people to understand a little bit about the geometry of it and a little bit about, you know, what you communicate inside a value model. And so the value model, we use the value model as a, like an iceberg, which is really a triangle, okay? And so if you think about an iceberg, above the waterline, the stuff we see above the waterline is only 10% of what actually exists. What's really going on with the iceberg is what is below the waterline and then what is right down at the base. And so... Everything above the waterline is a shallow conversation and people can't be shallow and deep at the same time. So if you talk to people about your product, the shallow conversation is what's your price? They know how to do that. So you need to take them down to the next level, which is the results, so outcomes, and just taking them a little bit deeper, moves them away from the shallow conversation, and then you need to take them down to meaning. What does that mean for them? And that takes them down. And I'll give you a quick example, and then I'll come back and give, uh, like, the thinking yeah. behind that, right? I have a cousin who's a non-surgical dermal therapist, so she uses light therapy to treat acne and things like that. And people will come to her and say, how much is, you know, I've got, can you help me with my acne? And she says, of course I can. And they go, how much is it? Shallow conversation, right? Acne treatment price. She says $365 a treatment, you'll need five. And they say, oh, I've been on the internet. I know I can get it for 90. And she says, that's right, I know you can. But I'm going to give you a 100% cleanup rate outcome. I'm not, about to, I'm not about to blow my record now. I've got a 100% cleanup rate and I'm not about to lose that number on you. I'm going to give you perfect skin. And she can do it. If they do what she asks them to do, they take the diet changes she wants them to take and she applies the... IPL therapy, she can really make a big difference. And they started to move a little bit away from price, right? And then she says, just tell me this, what would it mean to you if I was to give you perfect skin? And very often they burst into tears and they go, I'd go on a trip that I've always wanted to go and I'd find a partner, I wouldn't wear a hoodie when I go out in summer. And she goes, that's right. You see, I believe you deserve skin you love living in. Isn't that what you really want? And they go, oh, yeah, that's all I want. And she goes, that's what I'm going to do for you. What's happened to this? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's irrelevant now because you're giving me the outcome. and Just disappeared, right? Yeah. So if you think about that model as a triangle, and you go, what's your product? In other words, you need to be able to really clearly, specifically describe what the product is. And down here, you need to identify the three key outcomes that you deliver, that you can provide some evidence around. It doesn't have to be statistically pure, right? But evidence is always observable. So people will see it or hear it or, or be able to describe the feeling of it. And sometimes when I'm taking people through this, they go, oh, we've got many more than three key outcomes. That's great, but what are the top three? And this is forcing clarity. If you don't know your top three, your clients don't know your top three, right? 
Now, all they're deciding at the top is why this? Why do I need this product right now? And uh, down here, they're thinking, why now? Why do I need those three outcomes right now? And those two levels really are you and everyone else. So most people who do non-surgical dermal therapy for acne, why this? I've got acne. Why now? I've had enough. I'm, I've got a wedding coming up or I'm going to be judged. <laughs> three big outcomes. Most of the people that provide an acne solution are probably addressing the same three outcomes for most patients, right? Most patients have probably got the same three key outcomes. So that doesn't really differentiate you very much. The bigger, more important question down here is why you? Ahead of every other option available to them. And this comes down to two things, risk reversal. The first thing is they want to know that if I go with you, the risk that I perceive around this is completely reversed, 100% success rate, risk reversal. The second thing that has to happen here is promise the dream and make sure you can deliver on the dream, promise the dream. So perfect skin, summarise both those into skin you love living in, right? And that's a pretty good framework for people to dig deeper into value. In outcomes, there's really three kinds of value. There's value where we fix things. There's value where we prevent things and there's value where we upgrade things. Fix, prevent, upgrade. A dentist, when you've got a toothache, is fixing that toothache. When they're putting a crown on or a filling in, they're preventing future decay. When they're doing cosmetic dentistry, they're upgrading. I haven't been able to identify a type of value yet that doesn't fit into one of those three. And so a clue for what your outcomes might be, I'm not saying you've got to have a, you know, one of each in there, but your outcomes, the three outcomes, each of them must in one way or another fix, prevent or upgrade something significant for your client and uh, you need to be able to then provide risk reversal and build the promise, a dream on, uh, on those three outcomes for them and that's, that's where differentiation occurs. Uh, they look at you and go, you're the only one that's promised that to me. You know, I've got an accountant client who, I don't know about you, but how many people have an accountant that sends them their tax returns ready to be signed and there's a letter attached to it that says, here's your tax returns, which we've prepared for you, also based on a bunch of information we've given you throughout the year about how you should best manage your tax and the provisional tax return we did in May before we did the final one where you and I discussed the best strategies and put more money into super and everything else. You're using the bookkeeper that I recommended to you and I take the data straight out of their file in QuickBooks or Xero or MYOB and prepare your tax return based on my extensive knowledge of the ATO and how they operate and what they like to see and we need you to sign it now. But by the way, none of this is my responsibility and if any of this is wrong, it's your fault, you know, in the letter. That's actually what's happening when the accountant sends you a tax return and that disclaimer letter. There's no risk reversal in that. Now, how much business would an accountant get if an accountant sent you a letter that said a list with checkboxes next to it and the, the list has all of the things that they are legally required to do from a compliance point of view as your accountant and then the list has a bunch of other things that these tax returns need to meet to be acceptable and the accountant 
goes through and checks off every one of those checkboxes and says, we've done our own rigorous internal due diligence on your tax returns, and from our perspective, it's met all these requirements. I need you to read the tax return to make sure that you don't notice any data that might be incorrect or any statements that might be incorrect. As a part of preparing your tax return, we did an audit of the data provided by your bookkeeper. Totally, we've done an interview with your bookkeeper to make sure that they're using acceptable protocols and we check in with your bookkeeper every quarter when the BAS statement's done. So we're pretty confident. Which account would you go to? And would you pay them more? Yeah, yeah. But no one does. I don't, I don't get it. They're legally bound anyway, you know, so why not reverse risk? And so you can build out this model and then that kind of becomes an iceberg and then can be delivered with great choreography. Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're looking for? That's exactly what I was looking for. I typically give these sessions to my team and then have them document it. There is no way they're going to be able to articulate this. Without, <laughs> the, the model is really the articulation. It's, yeah, it is. That is distilled in this. So I might request kindly that maybe we get a copy of these slides and graphics. Sure. And I think that might be the best way to, to share with attendees. I don't know if there are any final points before, you know, talking about the best way for people to find out more about your work. It's, it's very unique, extremely powerful, and definitely one I'm going to personally dig into more, more myself. But I, I know I'd like to try and point people in your direction as well if they want to find out more. Sure. The comment that I would make to people, you know, really is that what typically happens is we start working, it's a bit like riding a bike. We start working with people on their models. And uh, there's a process, you know, of getting used to the idea of models and working differently. But the more you use them, the more you start thinking in models. So I hear conversations in models most of the time. So as I'm in a conversation, the model's forming. But the more you use models, the more natural they become to you. And uh, a lot of people look at how we, you know, teach people to deliver a model in the first place. Absolutely the most powerful place to get to is when you have an intimate, such an intimate understanding of your own models that you don't even need to fill in the content, you get the client to fill it in mm. because you can facilitate them to that. And it's hard for people to disagree with a model that they helped to build. And so when we've been working with clients for long enough, often they come back to us and they say, you know, like, I just start drawing models now without knowing what the content's going to be, you know, in a room, in a presentation or whatever, and, and they just work. We have tested this. They work way better when you hand draw them than they do if you use a PowerPoint slide to build them. You know, going to a blank sheet of paper and producing something like this or mm. the content I've put in front of you today is far more powerful. The other thing I would say to people is don't be fearful of them. It's a different way of thinking and communicating, and so sometimes people are fearful about that. But the reality is we've got far too much evidence now that even if you mess the model up, it works. You know, even if you, so if I went, if I went, you know, this is really, like it's really a little bit like an iceberg. There's the stuff you see above the waterline and then the stuff you see below the waterline. Like, you know, from an accounting point of view, using an accountant, what's the stuff you see above the waterline? And the client might go, are you doing tax returns? Right, yeah, so tax returns, anything else? Uh, my company returns? Yeah, so basically what, all the documents, right? Yeah, all the compliance stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the clients put, the documents in so you know what's really interesting is what that would mean what does that do for you in terms of results well it gets them done okay great what else well i hope they're accurate yeah what else 
I hope they're legal. No, yeah, what else? The client's populating all this, but I led them into it with one suggestion because I know the model. Okay, so that's all interesting stuff. The truth is that's every accountant. You don't actually come to me for that stuff. Every accountant should be doing that, shouldn't they? Yeah, they totally should. So that's every accountant. You know, what interests me is what does having all that really actually mean to you as a business owner? Well, what does that mean to you? I might go, well, I'm, I'm safe. Okay, safe from what? Well, from the ATO, yeah, anything else? Bankruptcy, yeah, anything else? And they might give me a few things. What else does it mean to you? Well, I don't have to worry. Yeah, that's a part of being safe. This is me just facilitating now. Yeah. What else does it mean to you? I know everything's secure. Yeah, that's a part of being safe. Hey, what does it mean to you in a positive way? Oh, I could grow my business. Great. So you're safe to grow. Yeah. That's what we believe you truly deserve. We believe an accountant needs to make it safe for you to grow. And isn't that what you really want? And they go, yeah. Well, that's what we do. Now, I just made that up on the spot. That has never existed before, that model. With some beautiful choreography in there as well. Like even even though it, you were playing both roles there, it was very clear and I could see how, how that could come together. Yeah, but literally that model didn't exist and none of that language existed a few minutes ago. Mm-mm. But that client would have built that whole model and how do they disagree with any of that? So it's, I would say to people, don't be fearful of it. The truth is you can go with an empty model and have the client fill in all the spaces and it'll be more powerful than the one you might have built and put in front of them yourself. The bell curve is a fascinating model to reposition on price. Um, I don't know that we've got the time to go through it right now, but I'd love to actually give people a little video on that. I can give people access to a little video. That would be um, great. With a little seven-point checklist on how to use the bell curve as a model to reposition the price of your product so that people don't want to actually drag you down to lowest price. There's nothing we haven't been able to tackle as in terms of a complex conversation or, or, or communication with a model, basically. And speed, speed is the issue. I mean, how fast did the sale occur? I mean, that iceberg now has the client positioned. So just very quickly, what's the only question left when you go, that's what we do, we make it safe for you to grow, that's what we do. As soon as that happens, what's the position that pops into your head? What's the question that pops into your head? When do we get started? <laughs> there is that. There's two, there's two possible questions that pop into your head. When do we get started? Which means they don't even want to know how you do it. You've done so well on the model, they just trust you. The other question that pops in is, well, how do, how do you do that? Yes. And I'm going to draw one of those two models to handle it. When do we get started or how do we do it? If you go, when do we get started? I wouldn't dive into this just yet. I'd just go, well, let me talk about that. Yeah. If you said, how do you do that? I'd go into this one and then say, well, let's talk about when you should start. These are sequential, right? So how fast is that sale? You know, it's the speed of conversion that I love the most about what the models do. So, uh, yeah, they're just, they're, just, they're just fun, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all I it's. It's my life. I think about them constantly. and um, um, I, I appreciate you sharing your unique ability. It's, as I said right at the start, it's a rare skill. I've not seen anyone talk about it to this point and break it down to the components and when models need to be used, how to then think about the construction of them. So, yeah, let's definitely link through to the bell curve. That's a great start and, and the checklist. 
We'll also put a link through to your website and I know you're doing some good stuff over on LinkedIn and there's some fantastic videos that I see you post over there. Is there any other places you you think? So certainly if they go to modelsmethod.com, there's, we're just building the YouTube channel at the moment, but most of the videos on the YouTube channel are also going to be, we've got a page on the website, which has a bunch of uh, quick videos for people to watch that are just a bunch of different models that, that can help them. There's also a page on the website about the genius model specifically, explains a little bit about that. If they send an email to KJ, the letters KJ, Kilo, Jellybean, that's not the proper yeah. <laughs> term. Kilo, Jellybean, what is J? J, J, I don't know. Anyway, Jellybean, KJ, Kilo, Jellybean, as in Kelly Joe at modelsmethod.com, and I think if they just put Jenin, Jennings in the subject line, we'll shoot them the link to the video on the bell curve. It's probably the easiest way. Just send an email to kj at modelsmethod.com, Jennings in the subject line, and, and we'll shoot them a link. It's probably the best thing. Perfect. Well, a big thank you for your time today. Very much enjoyed the session, and uh, no doubt we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks, David. Just been listening to the System Hub podcast. Remember, we've documented this system for you so you can literally swipe and deploy it within your business. Head to www.systemhub.com forward slash podcast to download it now.